Turn, if you have your copy of God's Word, to 2 Samuel chapter 14. We're just going to read verse 14. Can I be honest with you? Um, anybody in here, like, woke up in a funk this morning? I, I just, you feel it in the room a little bit? Like, I, I know I woke up in a funk this morning. You, what is that? I don't even know what that is. I don't know how to define that. It's just a, a funk, right? Um, guess what? I, I want to say this to you. You came to the right place, right? Uh, because sometimes we wake up in a funk and we just are maybe out of it a little bit, a little tired, busy weekend, lots to do, lots that has been done. We say, it's just, you know what? I don't really feel like I'm in the spirit of worship right now, so I probably should just stay home. No, listen, this is the remedy, Right? This is the antidote to your funk right here. It's the word of God being sung, read, proclaimed, and preached. And so, let's go ahead and uh, repent of all the funk, and we will go ahead and read 2 Samuel chapter 14, verse 14. Because God's word is living, and it's active, and it's powerful, and it is going to speak to our lives today. So, we're going to take up this entire chapter this morning, but I'm just going to read one verse, and then we'll take the rest up as we go. 2 Samuel 14. Verse 14 says this, For we will surely die and become like water spilled on the ground, which cannot be gathered up again. Yet God does not take away a life, but he devises means so that his banished ones are not expelled from him. First Baptist Church of Grey Gables, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord endures Let's go to the Lord and thank him for his word. Father, we do thank you that though our minds may be clouded and we may be affected by lack of sleep or an overwhelming grogginess, that your word is living. And we ask that you would now use your word to speak to your people. Lord, by the work of your spirit, as this word is proclaimed, would you cause your truth to be implanted deeply in the hearts of minds of your people so that we all might be transformed more and more into the image of our King Jesus. Increase our faith and cause our love to abound. Be glorified in our midst as your Son is exalted, we ask in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Well, if you happen to be on the texting list for First Baptist Church of Grey Gables, you received a song from me this week. Did anybody receive a song from me this week? Good? All right. Uh, I have, uh, Amy will tell you that this is my go-to worship jam over the last year. It's a song by a guy named Wendell Kimbrough, and it's a, a song I love very much. It's called, Oh, Give Thanks, and it is what we would classify as Southern Baptist as a foot tapper, right? Um, it is. It's a song that's based on Psalm 107. Uh, And in that song, at the very beginning, he writes these words. He says, we were wandering in the desert with our souls so starved and weak. We were hungry for a homeland we did not know how to seek. That's really what our passage is about in 2 Samuel 14. I, I really believe this. That is, that we are banished... But God has made a way to bring the banished back. 
So we've got a lot of ground to cover, but at the outset, we have to back up just a little bit from chapter 14 and go back into chapter 13, because there is where we're really introduced to this idea, and the idea is this, that sin leads to banishment, and that is a problem, right? Sin is what leads us to banishment, and that in itself is a problem. That's what we see in 2 Samuel chapter 13. In fact, there are two people that are banished in chapter 13, at least two. The first is Amnon. Amnon is the first who's banished, and he's banished from the land of the living. Amnon is banished from the land of the living in his death at the hands of Absalom. Look at verses 32 and 33 of 2 Samuel 13. The Bible says, Then Jonadab, the son of Shemaiah, David's brother, answered and said, Let, my Lord, let not my Lord suppose they have killed all the young men, the king's sons, for only Amnon is dead. And then again, verse 33, for only Amnon is dead. And then we find one more testimony to where Amnon is in all of this. And it's at the end of chapter 39 where it says concerning Amnon because he was, and you guessed it, dead. We know why his evil against Tamar had been returned upon his own head and he was banished from the land of the living. And we have to understand Amnon's death as the consequence for Amnon's sin. Sin leads to banishment, and in this case, banishment from the land of the living. Amnon wasn't simply murdered in cold blood for no reason at all, was he? Amnon had committed a horrible crime we read about in chapter 13. Amnon despised the word of the Lord and in so doing despised the Lord himself. And so the punishment for such a crime, according to the Torah, is death. The Lord demanded anyone, even the son of a king, that engaged in such wicked acts as Amnon in chapter 13 would be and should be put to death to purge the evil from the land. So though King David failed to intervene and execute justice, the true king... The Lord Almighty sent an instrument of justice to banish Amnon from the land of the living because it is not right for a brother to treat his sister as worse than a prostitute. So Amnon's the first character that's banished. The second character, obviously, we know that's banished from chapter 13 is Absalom, right? Absalom is banished from the land of promise. So we have Amnon banished from the land of the living, Absalom banished from the land of promise. Just as the passage declared to us the death of Amnon three separate times, it also declares the fleeing of Absalom three times. Verse 29, all the king's sons got on their mule and fled. Verse 37, but Absalom fled. Verse 38, so Absalom, and you guessed it, you guys are on this morning, the funk is gone, he fled. Three testimonies to Absalom's banishment from the land of promise. Absalom had reason to fear, to fear reprisal from his king and father, right? Because he had deceived his father. He had killed the firstborn, which would have been the heir to the throne. And, and to be clear, Absalom, in executing justice against his brother, still acted sinfully. Do not confuse God's righteous act in using this instrument of judgment as Absalom's righteous act. It wasn't. Absalom took vengeance into his own hands. 
He became judge and executioner, despising the word of the Lord. And that instructs us on how to handle such matters. See, Absalom is no more God-fearing than Amnon. Absalom doesn't appeal to his father, the king, nor does he appeal to the Lord at all. He hates his brother, plots a plan, repays the evil of Amnon with his own evil. There's an application for us right there that we can stop and apply. It's this, evil does not sanction evil. You know that, right? It never has. Evil does not sanction evil. We know this at one level, and yet practically the reality is we have a really hard time applying this truth. See, we know what the scriptures say. We know Romans chapter 12, verse 21, that tells us, Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. We know 1 Peter 3, 9, not returning evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, blessing, knowing that you were called to this, that you may inherit a blessing. You could even refer back to 1 Samuel chapter 24, verse 17, where Saul testifies when David spares his life, you are more righteous than I, for you have rewarded me with good, whereas I have rewarded you with evil. We know Romans 12, 19, quoting Deuteronomy 32, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. We know 1 Peter 2, 23, we are to emulate our Savior who, when he was reviled, did not revile in return when he suffered. He did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously. You got enough biblical evidence to know that evil does not sanction evil? And yet we're so quick to justify our own evil against others. We all do it. Uh, So you correct your son or your daughter for something, and and what do they do immediately? They tell you exactly why they did it, because their sibling did this. And and they learn that behavior. Because we do the same thing. Our evil actions, they're never justified by the evil of another. So we have to be reminded this morning that evil does not sanction evil. All evil, every act and intent of evil will be punished either on the cross or on the last day. So Absalom's evil deed is what leads to his own exile and he's also banished. We see clearly that sin leads to banishment. But for now, I want us to see... How central this banishment motif is in the scripture. In fact, we could point back to 1 Samuel, where if you remember, David himself was banished to the Philistines. 2 Samuel actually begins, remember, with David being brought home. But we could go even further back than that, couldn't we? The Bible is in one sense a story about a son who is banished. Exile and death are two of the primary ways in which the penalty of sin is described in the scriptures as a whole. Adam's the first banished son. And the first question of the Bible is how will the banished son return home? It's the story of humanity. Banished from the presence of the one and true only living God. And the scriptures teach us that our problem is we've been banished from the presence of God. We are all at enmity with him. We cannot draw near to the one we were created to love because we've rebelled against him. We do, know, we do not know God the way we should, and therefore, we do not love him. We do not honor him and thank him, and that's our problem. Again, I, I believe Wendell Kimbrough nails it on the head. Humanity was wandering in the desert, 
with our souls so starved and weak. And then he goes on the next refrain to say, we were locked out of the garden and our backs bent down with pain. In the shadow of death's darkness, we were slaves to sin and blame. Listen, this reminds us, the fact that we're banished, it's a simple reminder, but it's something we desperately need, friends. We say it all the time here. It reminds us that we are not home. We're not. Beloved, God is bringing us home. Praise be to God. Uh, he, has, he has granted us grace so that we've lifted up our voices to the only one who hears and, and cried out the God of mercy came and brought us near. He is with us and he's promised to never leave us nor to forsake us, but we are still walking through the desert. We're still hungry for a homeland even if we now know how to seek it through Christ alone. See, we must have this lens through which we see the world and its problems. Every single problem, whether physical, mental, social, or political, economic, even fill in the blank, any way you might want to think about the dilemma, it has to be traced back to the root. We have lost that which we most desperately need, a right relationship with our Creator. Banishment, death, enslavement to another, orphaned from our Father. Whatever metaphor helps you realize we've been estranged, banished, cast out because we rebelled against Him. See, see that's why it's important that we, we always think about this. And we're reminded of this over and over and over again. Because your proposed solution to the problem will reflect what you think the problem is. So many of you probably have noticed this little spot on my face, right? Have you? If you haven't, now you're looking at it, right? Um, so what happened was my wife thought this was an ingrown hair, and so she wanted to try and remove it. Uh, and she did by just picking at my face over and over again, and this little dot formed. And so the answer's simple. Um, we just don't do that anymore. Now I look like a redneck Enrique Iglesias. But, you know... Um, Whatever the problem is, uh, there's a remedy that we all think it is. For me, according to Google, I just need to put some hot water on it, try to raise that hair, and try to pick it out with um, tweezers by myself without the help of my wife, right? Uh, no. But here's the reality is, is I apply a physical remedy. But, but even with something so small and silly... I do well to remember that the reason why I don't grow a perfect Justin Hartzell beard is because my body is broken. And I'm reminded that I'm not home even with a silly ingrown hair. I know that sounds absolutely ridiculous, but friends, this is what it looks like to have a lens of a biblical worldview. Review everything, everything through this lens. Because when I'm home where God is, I won't have any ingrown hairs. <laughs> I will have a body that's clothed in the imperishable and immortal. Okay. So we probably should move on to our passage now in chapter 14, right? Anyone nervous yet? All right. It's all right. It's always when Xander's in nursery too. She's going to... All right. Really, this is what chapter 14 is about. Let's look at move at the chapter 14. Because what we see here again is that the Lord brings the banished back. 
It's a beautiful story. It's, a, it's probably a weird story for many of you, but, but really that's what chapter 14 is about. See, the, the primary actors in this chapter are Absalom the banished, David, who actually is playing the role of the banisher, Joab and the wise woman, who I kind of put them together as the mediator who brings about reconciliation. So let's look at the action. Okay? Beginning of verse 1, David's mind or heart is on or against Absalom. The Hebrew here is really, really weird. In fact, let me look and, 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 and tell you how this translates into English and then do a little bit of Hebrew work because it's going to change your, your mind, I think, a little bit. Right? So the end of chapter 13, verse 39 says this. And King David longed to go to Absalom. And if you notice in your Bible, maybe you have a little mark there or a couple marks or notes that cause you to look down. And it'll tell you that that long to go to in this sense is really ceased or to stop to pursue after. How we get long to go to from cease to pursue after, you'll have to ask whoever translated this from Hebrew. But this word, long to, is really most often translated almost everywhere in the Hebrew as cease to pursue after. And then you have verse 1 of chapter 14 that tells us, So Joab the son of Zariah perceived that the king's heart was concerned about Absalom. So, so the way the English portrays it is we've got this David who's desiring reconciliation, wanting to overcome this enmity, wanting to bring Absalom home. But again, I'm just super confused why it's translated this way. Again, that word longed for, it's almost always translated ceased or finished. And so there's some ambiguity here on exactly what is ceased or finished about David's spirit in verse 39. I really think... The idea is best understood as David here initially entertaining vengeance, right? Going to bring Absalom back in order to execute judgment. But instead he ceases from that. Or that diminishes because as chapter 13 verse 39 tells us, he's comforted by Amnon or about Amnon. And then we get to chapter 14. And the most straightforward reading is here, Joab knew that the heart mind of the king was, there's this preposition here now, on or against Absalom. So to, so to go to concerned, it's just not necessarily there. And I really believe that the idea, especially in the context, is that Joab understands that there's enmity between this father and son. David and Absalom, there's beef between them that still exists. Why Joab intervened doesn't really matter, but but the question for us is this. Is David's disposition friendly towards Absalom? Or is there actually enmity existing between Absalom and David? Did you read the chapter this week? If if you did, I'm really going to argue for the latter. And I think as you look at the rest of chapter 14, it makes a lot more sense. David's, David's not warm toward Absalom. If David desires or longs to bring Absalom home, he sure does have a lot of opportunities to do that very thing. If David desires to overcome the enmity and bring the banished back, then the rest of chapter 14 is really super strange because everyone else is working a lot harder to make that happen than David. Even at the end, all we get here is this cold formality. 
If you don't believe me, let's walk through the text together, shall we? It's only about 20 minutes into the sermon, about time we did that. All right, Joab brings a woman to himself. He puts words in her mouth and sends her to David. The woman spins a yarn, as they say. Not the first time we've seen this, is it? The Lord puts words into Nathan's mouth and sent him to spin a yarn of his own to bring conviction to David in, in uh, chapter 12. And so the woman goes and she tells a story to David about having two sons. First, she makes the point that she is a widow. She explains that the two sons were out in a field and there was no one to separate them. The one struck down and killed the other. Now her family wants to take the son and execute him for this murder. She pleads with the king in verse 7, and now the whole family has risen up against your maidservant. And they said, deliver him who struck his brother, that we may execute him for the life of his brother whom he killed. And we will destroy the heir also. So they would extinguish, extinguish my ember that is left and leave to my husband neither name nor remnant on the earth. So David responds with, again, this somewhat ambiguous response. Verse 8, he says, Go to your house, and I will give orders concerning you. That's going to be important for next week, by the way. That's not a judgment. That's a nothing. The king's supposed to judge on these matters, and here she's come to, to David for a judgment. He says, just go home. I'll talk to you later, essentially. Verse 9, she's not satisfied, so she entreats the king. My lord, O king, let the iniquity be on me in my father's house, and the king in his throne be guiltless. So David responds a little bit stronger this time in verse 10. So the king said, whoever says anything to you, bring him to me and he shall not touch you anymore. She's still not satisfied. So in verse 11, it says, then she said, please let the king remember the Lord, your God, and do not permit the avenger of blood to destroy anymore, lest they destroy my son. And then we have this high mark here at the end of verse 11. And he said... As the Lord lives, not one hair of your son shall fall to the ground. Then she turns around and says, please let your servant speak a word. He gives her permission. And she says this in verse 13. So the woman said, why then have you schemed such a thing against the people of God? For the king speaks this thing as one who is guilty and that the king does not bring his banished one home again. For we will surely die and become like water spilled on the ground, which cannot be gathered up again. Yet God does not take away a life, but he devises means so that his banished ones are not expelled from him. And at the end, Absalom is brought home, sort of. David gives Joab permission, having eventually asked the woman, Hey, is Joab behind this? I'm on to you. And she says, Ah, king, you got me. It was Joab. The king finally says, All right. Joab, go get him. You can bring him back. That section ends, by the way, with he's to live apart from me and not enter into my presence. So the banishment ends for Absalom. Sort of, right? He remains banished actually for another two years. He becomes fed up. Eventually, he just lights Joab's field on fire. He's a little bit of a wild card, that guy, right? Uh, that gets Joab's attention. Joab says, hey, what's the deal? Why is my field on fire? Absalom says, bro, I've been calling you and you didn't come. Next time, come when I call you and I won't set stuff on fire, as is rational. Then he pleads his case. He says, well, what's the point of me being banished here? I can't enter the king, my father's presence. I'm still banished. And he says this in verse 32. Absalom answered Joab, look, I sent to you saying, come here, 
so that I might send you to the king to say, why have I come from Geshur? It'd be better for me to be there still. Now, therefore, let me see the king's face. But if there's still iniquity in me, let him execute me. Essentially, he would prefer for his father to slay him than continue separated from him. The conclusion, Absalom's finally brought all the way home, almost. He comes in, he bows before the king, and then the king just follows this royal protocol, which is he gives him a kiss. So it's a happy ending at the end of chapter 14. The banished one is brought home, only not. David actually does not make a way to bring his banished back, and that's really the point of the passage. As I said, that's what the passage is about. But it communicates this to us in two ways. I know I've got to make this argument, so I'm going to. There's two ways this passage communicates the idea of bringing the banished back. The first is actually a counterexample of what this looks like. David is kind enough to provide that role for us. David's a counterexample of bringing the banished back. The author communicates this in several different ways. I don't think I have any blanks in your handout, so I'm going to try to go through these relatively quickly here. Um, but if you're a note taker, just grab a bulletin and they'll be on there. First, Joab brings Absalom back from exile into the family's presence. And the reality is the first evidence we see is Joab is doing all the work here, right? This poor guy, right? All he wants is reconciliation for his king, gets his field set on fire and all sorts of stuff. Uh, so he's the one at work here. Joab knows he's the one that receives request. He thanks the king. He brings him in. He remains the mediator throughout. He's the one working this reconciliation to bring the banished back. At no point in this chapter does David initiate any action of bringing his son back. At all. Second, we have always talked about parallels and allusions in the scripture. There is a very telling allusion to 1 Samuel chapter 14, verse 45 here. If, if you recall, this is where Jonathan has achieved this great victory over the Philistines. He, he takes on a, a garrison all by himself. He, he and his armor bearer, they depend on the Lord. He climbs up the hill without any weapon whatsoever in his hand. And he moves towards the enemy who awaits him. And Jonathan strikes down 20 of these jokers with his bare hands. So all of Israel is just motivated and they come out against the Philistines and there's a great victory. And Saul's like, yeah, guys, this is what I'm talking about. All right. Now, no one eat until the victory is complete. Saul, he had issues. Um, His son, Jonathan, didn't know that he had given the order. So his son, Jonathan, after taking care of 20 men by himself with his bare hands, gets a little hungry and tastes a little bit of honey. And he brings upon himself the curse of his father. This ends in the judgment coming against Jonathan. So Saul's son, Jonathan, is going to die for this very ridiculous thing. And Saul's actually all for this. He does nothing in the course of that narrative to stop the judgment that's going to fall on his son, Jonathan. And then we read this in verse 45. You ready? But the people said to Saul... Shall Jonathan die who has accomplished this great deliverance in Israel? Certainly not. Hear this. As the Lord lives, not one hair of his head shall fall to the ground. That's exactly what David says to the woman of Tekoa, wasn't it? As the Lord lives, not one hair should fall to the ground. That's what the people said in regards to Jonathan. 
For he has worked with God this day. And so the people rescued Jonathan and he did not die. They intervened to bring the banished back. He was about to be banished from the land of the living. But they intervened and said, no, it shall not be. Well, this shows us that David's acting like Saul. Those very words that indict him remind the reader that David should be laboring to ransom his son. David's words echo the ransom of Jonathan by the people of God. But David has made no effort to devise a plan to bring the banished home. All right, so we see Joab's the one at work here. Allusion to Jonathan in 1 Samuel 14, 45. Third one, quickly, there's a, there's a clear indictment of David from the woman in verses 12 and 13. It's an indictment that's based on his own lack of judgment. But here there's no confession to follow. It's similar to what we see in chapter 12. But David doesn't repent after this. There's no admittance from David here that he's wrong in any way, shape, or form. Fourth, we see there's the example of the woman who pleads with David on behalf of her own son's life. Notice the escalation in that, by the way. She refuses to be sent away until she hears the words of the king. A hair from his head shall not fall to the ground. I believe this is meant to serve as what we call a foil, right? It's a literary device that that offers a contrast that the reader sees. We see the woman pleading on behalf of her son, the refusal to be sent away until she hears the promise that her son will not die. And all we have on this side is David's silence. He reluctantly allows the son to be brought home, but remains silent. Fifth, David's lack of the use of the word son here in verse 21 may be the most telling argument here. When David does honor the request of Joab, you know what he says in verse 21 of chapter 14? And the king said to Joab, All right, I've granted this thing. Go therefore bring back the young man, Absalom. That, that word young man's reference to servants. He's not David's son. Just bring back the young man. Fine. You want him, Joab? Go bring him back. You deal with him. Don't bring him into my presence. Does that sound like David's heart is longing for reconciliation here? Sixth and finally, the episode concludes with this cold formality and a deafening silence. Verse 33 says, And when he had called for Absalom, he came to the king, bowed himself on his face to the ground before the king. Then the king kissed Absalom. Now, on the surface, that might look like some reconciliation, right? That's, that's something. He's back in the presence of the king. Maybe this is a happy ending. Then we move on to chapter 15. We see Absalom's rebellion and David's exile. So I think that's made enough argument to see that what we have here is a counterexample of bringing the banished home. But, but second, I want us to see that David himself is a contrast to our father who makes a way to bring the banished home. There's one truth about God that's so important here, which is why we read verse 14. In fact, the real lesson is stated in our passage in verse 14. Just take it piece by piece. We start at the beginning of verse 14, which says, We will surely die. That reminds you of anything? Genesis chapter 2, verse 17. What else can this mean besides that we are all banished? 
That you and I are all destined to be banished from life by the author of life. That we are all wandering in our desert with our souls so starved and weak. We will surely die. She goes on. We are all like water spilled on the ground which cannot be gathered up again. This woman reminds David and us that we share a universally hopeless condition. Death is a reminder that we are all banished. An eternal banishment is our corporate destiny in Adam. Like water that spilled out on the ground, there is no way to undo what we did. You could try this at home today with your kids. Go back over this with them. Go outside, spill some water on the ground, and tell them, gather it up for us. Put it back in the cup. You can't do it. Or think of the words of Paul in Romans 7.24. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Moving on, the wise woman says this, Yet God does not take away a life, but he devises means so that his banished ones are not expelled from him. Literally, he devises the device in the Hebrew. He plans a plan, we might say in English. In other words, unlike David, the Lord will bring his banished son home. See, this verse reminds us of our hopeless estate and points us to the one who will ransom us from eternal banishment. In fact, if this were a play, right? If this whole thing was a scene and was acted out, the woman Tekoa comes, uh, you'd be reading through this and she's just engaging David. She's engaging David. She's speaking to him. And then there's just this proverb in verse 14. This would be the moment when all the lights would dim in the whole house and there'd just be a spotlight on her. She'd turn from engaging David to engaging the crowd. And she'd speak this for all to hear. She would say in verse 14, For we will surely die and become like water spilled on the ground which cannot be gathered up again. Yet God does not take away a life. He devises means so that his banished ones are not expelled from home. Then the lights would shine back on and she continued to go about the play engaging David as if she really had a son and the, the whole thing plays out. But the reality is this truth is not just stated in our passage the truth that God brings the banished home is illustrated for us in the rest of the Bible, isn't it? We're meant to consider and compare what we see here. In other words, we know this is not a good illustration of bringing the banished one home. Because we've seen truer and better pictures of it. For example, if you got the reading this week, Genesis 33... The banished one, Jacob, come back, comes back to the promised land. He meets the one he's wronged along the way, his brother Esau. And how's their reunion? From a distance? Does Jacob bow down before him? No words spoken? A kiss offered and then they go their merry way? No, Genesis 33.4 says, But Esau ran to meet him embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him and they wept. David allowed Absalom to return to Jerusalem but refused to see him. And when he finally sees him, we read he only followed royal protocol then, more or less treated him like any other stranger. If David had remembered Esau, who Jacob said was like seeing the face of God, he would have met Absalom outside of Jerusalem and ran to him, embraced him, fell on his neck and wept, right? All right, if you got that reading assignment day and made it to day one, I think you covered that one. Day two, 
What about Joseph? His reception of his brothers who sold him into slavery. You know the story. Genesis 45 verses 14 through 15 tells us, Then he fell on his brother Benjamin's neck and wept. Moreover, he kissed all his brothers and wept over them. Like Esau, Joseph initiates. Like Esau, Joseph embraces his brothers. He kisses them. He weeps for joy to have the enmity removed and bring the banished one home. Saints, how many more times does the Lord need to tell us? How many times does he need to show us that he receives you like Joseph and Esau and not like David? Beloved, get this, our father will not take away our lives, but he has devised a device so that we who are banished may return home. Our father made a way to bring his banished ones home and we're on our way. We're like Jacob. We're heading back to the promised land, to the place where the glory of God covers all things like water covers the sea. Saints, what reception do we expect when we arrive? See, the reality is, I think our hearts get kind of dull here. We, we get in this funk a little bit, and I think we twist and pervert the revelation of our Father. We often imagine that on that day the Lord receives us, we'll be received like David received Absalom. Yeah, you know, I know I'm saved. I, I know God will bring me home. I'm eventually going to be brought into his presence, and he will receive me. Begrudgingly, coldly, silently. It's a lie. David's a counterexample. He serves as a contrast for our father. David is not here acting like his Lord and King. Jesus, by the way, tells us exactly what our reception is going to be like in Luke 15, does he not? Doesn't he describe the reception of the prodigal by the father? What is the reception? Oh, okay, that's fine. Heard my son's home, but you know what? He needs to live over there. Keep him away from me. He may not come into my presence. And here's the truth, guys. Really, saints, if if that were the reception, that'd be good enough. It would. But instead, what does our father do? Our father runs. Our father falls upon our neck and he weeps, clothes us with his robe. He puts rings on our fingers. He prepares a feast for us and commands that a celebration be thrown for his son has come home. That's our reception. Friends, think about that in the death of your loved ones that know Christ. What a God. They didn't just enter into heaven and he said, oh, cool, you're here. He ran to embrace them, celebrated that the son and daughter are home. Why don't we view him in this way? I feel like we'd fear death a lot less if we knew that what's awaiting us is reconciliation from a loving father who runs to embrace us. But unlike that parable, We have that certainty of that reception because the older son did not stand back and begrudgingly insult us, question his father. But instead, the older son came and sought us. Unlike David, the older son left his throne, 
left his heavenly Jerusalem to come into exile, to experience our banishment and to take upon himself the death we should have died. Don't you see? Unlike David, Jesus said, on me be the guilt. The problem is you and I still have a little prodigal in us. So we think that when I finally get home, I finally get to heaven, I'm just going to explain everything. I'm going to tell him, Lord, I'll be a servant. Just put me to work. What can I do to earn my keep around here, Lord? But oh, friends, the father runs, falls upon our necks and weeps. We can't even get the words out of our mouth because he's already received us as a son and daughter. Does that, by the way, sound unbefitting for the creator of all things? Doesn't it? That's why we probably wrestle with it a little bit. But they're his words, not mine. The question for us is, will you believe? In fact, who will you believe? Your hard, dull heart imagining that your father will receive you with anything less than joy and weeping? Which will you believe? Your dull heart or your father's precious promise? See, this passage reminds us the Lord and King of all things has made a plan to bring the banished back. So when my heart kept going back to this song. We were locked out of the garden and our hearts bent down with pain. In the shadow of death's darkness, we were slaves to sin and blame. Then we cried out in our labor. To the only one who hears. And the God of mercy wiped away our tears. Oh, give thanks to the Lord. For his love endures forever. We were wandering and lost. And our father brought us home. To a safe dwelling place. To a feast of joy and laughter. Oh, give thanks. To the Lord, for he is good. He's good. Would you stand as we pray? Gracious Father, Lord, we're about to sing another song that expresses our thanks to you. For we were once your enemies, and now we're seated at your table. Lord, would you forgive your people for how often we act And imagine like you are like David, slow to receive your people, but quite the contrary. You sought us out and brought us back. You sent your own son to rescue us, to ransom us that the banished might be brought home. Father, thank you. Jesus, thank you. Would you help us to believe more fully in your love for us? Do you help us to imagine that you actually rejoice over us? That of course it's not anything in us, but it's because of your glory and your great love for which you have for your people. Would you help us to mortify every lesser image of you as some begrudging father who does not delight in his children? We ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. So we come to the time of 
invitation. Maybe you're uh, here this morning and you can certainly relate to being banished. You've, you've maybe wondered what the word is to describe how you feel on this earth. Maybe you've tried uh, to follow after your own footsteps, follow after your own path, to live for your own happiness, and you've come to the conclusion that there's really ultimately no lasting joy in that. It's because you've been banished from what you were created for, and that is a right relationship with your creator, God. The good news of the gospel is, as we've seen, God has made a way to bring the banished home. So if you don't have a relationship with Jesus, and you know that to be true in your heart, you need to understand what what God has done out of his love for you, and that is to send his son, Jesus, to live a perfect life, a life that you should live but can't live. Jesus lived it for you. And out of his great love for you, he received the punishment you deserved in your rebellion, and that is sin and death. He was crushed on the cross by his father, paying the penalty for your sin. And yet in his crucifixion, the Lord gave you the gift of his righteousness, his right standing before the Father, so that the Father can look at you as a son who was once banished but now is coming home. And your life can now be about this very thing, understanding that this is not your home and oh, longing to be home with your Father forever. If that's you this morning, You know that you don't have a right relationship with your creator. You know that you've been banished from the land of promise. Then please respond to this gospel message. I'll be down front. I believe Brother Brad will be down front as well. We'd love the opportunity to talk to you about King Jesus this morning. But friends, for us, for those who are in the church, the first application is very clear, right? Don't see your father as begrudgingly accepting you and receiving you as a son and daughter. But see him as someone who runs, embraces you. David's not emulating the Lord in any way in this passage. And friends, if that helps you in any way, we just sang it, right? Once our enemy, your enemy, now seated at your table, Jesus, thank you. So what? Lover of my soul, I want to what? How could you not, right? Like, like you understand this is the creator of the universe and you have rebelled against him in your sin and wickedness and yet not only has he died for you, sent his son to die for you, crushed his son for your iniquities, but now he receives you this way as a loving father. How could you not want to live for him? How could you not have your lives radically changed by the love of this God and this father? It's very simple, friends. We have to see everything in this world through the gospel lens that he's given us through his word. And we are here to help each other do that together. Because I fail often, even with ingrown hairs. (laughs) I fail to see how it's connected to the gospel. Friends, it's all connected to the gospel. I want to thank you so much for being here this morning. If you're a guest of ours, again, I want to say hello to you and shake your hand. Please don't leave without doing so. And Church, we allow the Lord to work. When we end the sermon, it's not just time to go. It's the invitation time. So respond to the beautiful gospel message that the Lord even gives us, even in a contrast in 2 Samuel 14. I love each and every one of you, and I praise God for you.